And isn't that a perfect picture of what our God is, is like? He is that father. He is the shepherd. He is the one who welcomes us home into his care. As uh, I'm sitting there watching the, the videos uh, of the kids and hearing the jokes and stuff, um, one of my sons is drawing what he loves to draw best, and so this is my Father's Day card this morning. I don't know if you can see that, but that, that is what gets drawn in our house um, hundreds of every day. It's an army tank, in case you're wondering. So that's uh, my Father's Day card today. Thank you, Theodore. <laughs> and he's making another one. Perfect. I look forward to it. Would you bow with me again, and let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your heart towards us. We thank you that your love is never-ending, and we thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you, Lord, that you give us everything we need as we come to you, that you strengthen us day by day. And so now, Lord, I ask for that strength for myself to preach this word that you have laid on my heart. Would you speak through it, Lord, through me, your servant, and would you open each one of our hearts to receive what you have for us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1555, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley walked out of prison for the last time. They both were condemned to be burned at the stake for refusing to renounce their personal faith in Jesus Christ. As they approached the stake, Latimer uttered these unforgettable words to his good friend. Be of good cheer, Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle as by God's grace, I trust, shall never be put out. Play the man. Those were his final words before going up in smoke. Now, where exactly did Hugh Latimer get that phrase from? Play the man. Well, he learned it from none other than King David. When upon his deathbed, he imparted his final words of instruction and challenge to his son Solomon. And we we read those in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and we've heard it this morning a couple of times, but let's look at it one more time. And if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. 2 Kings, pardon me, 1 Kings chapter 2. And there are the first four verses. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong. Show yourself a man, or in the Old English, play the man. And observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements, as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. So what exactly did David mean when he told Solomon to play the man or show yourself a man? Well, that phrase, show yourself a man, in its original Hebrew meaning can carry the implication of become a man by doing these things. Or if you do these things, in so doing, you will become a man. So then, according to God's word, I want to ask the question this morning, is how does one become a man? Now, of course, as we go through this this morning, there will be principles that apply to everyone, regardless of men or women, regardless of role or age. There are principles that will apply to us all. But of course, with this being Father's Day, we are going to be focusing specifically 
on that role of father. And so now, how does one become a man? First, one becomes a man by having a heart that seeks after God. Now, in contrast to the usually, you know, earthly stereotypes, how does one prove one's manliness according to the usual, you know, stereotypes that we give of being a man, being a man's man, being a macho man? Well, we would say you have to be physically strong to be a man, right? You've got to have big muscles like Arnold Schwarzenegger. That is how you become a man. Or it means you have to be able to be a tough guy who can handle himself in a fight like Chuck Norris or Jackie Chan. That is how you become a man. Or to be a man means you're good with the ladies. You're slick like James Bond. But is that actually what King David means when he told his son Solomon to be strong and show yourself a man? Is that what he was meaning? Not in the least. Not in the least. For I want you to notice that in the very next breath, David does not tell Solomon to go and work out or to go and train for war or to go and woo the ladies. Instead, he points him to the heart of the matter which is his relationship with the Lord. For while there are some elements of manhood in one's physical strength or in his ability to protect others or in his conduct towards the opposite sex, these are only surface-level things. What David is pointing to is much deeper, that the true essence of what makes a man lies within his heart, within the very core of his character, and that begins with his relationship Towards God. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7 states, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What that means is that it's not your outer actions or your outer stature that defines what kind of a man you are. Instead, it is what lies within your heart. For a prime example of this, we need look no further than David himself, who when he was still just a 90-pound shepherd boy out tending his father's sheep, out there without anything impressive for anyone else to, to see or to look at, we know how the story goes. Samuel is sent to Jesse's house in Bethlehem to choose the next king of Israel, and all of David's older brothers who are, who are older, stronger, physically impressive are passed over one by one until finally David, who wasn't even invited to the party, is brought in. And when Samuel wonders about all of this, the Lord told Samuel, the Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So though David was still just a boy, he already had the heart of a man after God's own heart, one that would seek after God until his dying breath. Of course, we know that David was far from perfect. His his missteps and sins are well documented. But once confronted by them, David did not run away from them or or deny them or try to make excuses as King Saul before him had done. But instead, when confronted with his sin, David threw himself upon the Lord's mercy. And he accepted responsibility for what he had done, and he sought the Lord's forgiveness. 
This demonstrates once again that what set David apart as a man after God's own heart was not that he was perfect, but that in all things he sought God first. That was the target, that was the aim, the priority of David's entire life was to seek after the Lord's heart with his whole heart. And so, men, fathers, today, let me ask you, what or who does your heart seek after more than anything else? Who does your heart seek first? And let me just say to you, regardless of your age, whether you are 7 or 70 or on somewhere in between or on further ends of the spectrum, the answer to that question, who does your heart seek first, the answer to that question will determine what kind of a man you are and will yet become. Because remember, even as just a boy, David's heart was already seeking the Lord and it set the direction for his entire life and what kind of a man and king he would yet become. Now, secondly, become a man by embracing your God-given responsibility of leadership. Let me say that one more time. Become a man by embracing your God-given responsibility of leadership. Now, for Solomon, accepting this responsibility of leadership from his own father was not a small thing. You know, Often, fathers will pass along to their sons what they have amassed in their lifetime. We saw that in the story of the prodigal son, where the father is passing along his inheritance even before he has died to his sons. And so most times, in most regular circumstances, a father will pass along his his business, or perhaps his farm operation. But what David is passing along to Solomon is not just a business or a farm operation. He is passing along the kingship of an entire nation. An entire nation of people are now being passed along to Solomon as his responsibility to lead them. Now, of course, while the vast majority of us will never lead anything even close to that size, if you are a father listening today, let me say this to you. Even if you're never going to lead a nation or anything, you know, even a large business or, or even dozens of people, if you're never going to lead something that size, let me just say to you, dads, you are already leading something every bit as important. You are already, as a father, leading something every bit as important as a nation, and that is your family. You see, by God's design... He has placed the father as the head of the house in that role of leadership, physically and spiritually, for his family. Of course, this is done together with the mother, who's also there in that role. But you see, by God's design, he has placed the father in that lead role. And as leadership, from God's view, is not one of being large and in charge. It's not ruling like a king, having dominion and telling everyone to to do things your way. Instead, godly leadership, the way he has designed it, true leadership as Jesus modeled it, means using your strength not to lord it over them, not to demand obedience, but instead you use your strength to serve. You use your strength to provide, to protect, to teach, and to love. 
And so towards your wife, leadership means loving your wife sacrificially in the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And towards your children, that means not being overbearing or harsh towards them. It means instead in love, disciplining them, teaching them, and training them up in the faith to know and to love and to serve the Lord. Now make no mistake, all of this is a big responsibility. And I'm sure that as Solomon was receiving this charge from his father, the weight of that responsibility was was maybe feeling a little bit heavy on his shoulders. And I'm sure that even as I say all of this, you as fathers who already knew all of these things, but hearing them again, you feel that weight of that responsibility that God has given you on your shoulders. Well, you know what? I'm going to say that that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to feel a little bit of a weight of responsibility on our shoulders. It keeps our feet on the ground and our eyes towards the Lord, knowing that this responsibility is not one that we should take lightly, because God certainly doesn't. But now listen, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then as a son of God, his strength is already within you to not only embrace the responsibility, but also to sustain you and give you the strength you need to have success little by little and day by day as you accept your God-given responsibility to lead your family towards the Lord. And so to be a godly father means that accepting and embracing your responsibility of leadership is what we must do, just as David did for his family. Not only for your own heart and life, but for the hearts and lives of your wife and your children. So let me encourage you today, don't avoid your God-given responsibility. Don't run away from it. Don't abdicate it to someone else. Don't say, ah, I'll get to it later. Excuses are great, but what do excuses ever accomplish? All it does is kicks the ball further down the road until we kick it again and again and again and say, I'll eventually get to it. But if we never do, excuses aren't worth anything. And so as fathers, I want you to think of this. Of all of the people in the world that God could have entrusted your children to, he chose you. Of all of the people in the world that he could have entrusted my three kids to, it staggers me to think that God gave Declan, Theodore, and Adeline to me. That's a big deal. Take it as a sacred trust from the Lord. He has given your children specifically to you. He chose you. Yes, friends, that is a big responsibility, but what a privilege. What a privilege. So to all my fellow fathers out there listening today, let me exhort you. That big word, because that's what David is doing to Solomon. He's exhorting him. He's giving him encouragement, but with, a, with an edge, a command, an instruction. Be a man by being someone who embraces your God-given responsibility to lead your family towards the Lord. Now thirdly, become a man by walking in obedience to God's word. Become a man by walking in obedience to God's word. David continues to exhort Solomon to be strong and become a man by closely obeying the word of the Lord. Now, it goes almost without saying that in order to obey the word of the Lord, you have to know the word of the Lord. You can't obey something that you don't understand or know about. 
And so that means that you have to be in the Word, reading it for yourself, listening to it being taught, as I'm doing right now, and studying it on your own, growing in your understanding of it. In Ephesians chapter 6, God's Word instructs us, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And then for the final piece of armor, it says this, And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now the Bible is described in Scripture as the sword of the Spirit, and it's also described as being sharper than any two-edged sword. And so every bedtime, or almost every bedtime, when we do family devotions in the room together with me and my boys, we bring that truth home in the most fun way possible. We have a sword duel before we do devotions every night. And I go, shwing! And Declan pulls his Bible out, and we go, ching, ching, ching! And we have a sword fight with our Bibles. And it's a lot of fun. It sounds goofy, I know. But there's a truth in it. This is sharp. It is a sword. It is our weapon. And it's the Spirit of God who works in and through this Word. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so, my friends, if you are not engaging with God's Word in some practical way every single day, then you are like a soldier who is going into battle unarmed. You are like a soldier charging the enemy lines without your gun, or like a warrior going into battle without his sword. You see, we are in a spiritual war. And as we just read, there is a very real enemy who is on the prowl. As 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8-9 to tells us, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for those he may devour. This is not a small thing. This is, this is a big thing. We have an enemy. And he is on the prowl. And you see, the devil not only wants to deceive and destroy you... He wants to deceive and destroy your family. He wants to deceive and destroy your children and your grandchildren. And further still, he wants to deceive and destroy this church, this town, this nation, and ultimately this world. And my friends, all we have to do is look around at our, our world today, at the vast level of things that appear to be going wrong all at once, and we don't have to wonder if he's on the prowl today, if he's at work today, if he's trying and, and succeeding in devouring people today. It is happening. The battle is raging. Our culture is rapidly changing around us, and mostly not for the better. You see, the world that our kids are growing up into the 2020s is much, much different than even the world that my generation grew up in the 80s and the 90s. And of course, in all times, regardless of the outer influences of the world, in all times and ages, everyone must make their own decision as to whether or not they will follow the Lord, as to whether or not they will obey his word. Everyone has to make that decision for themselves. But the enemy's influence and his opposition against making that decision to follow Jesus and against those living the Christian life is more fierce today than it was 10 and 20 and 30 years ago. The opposition is increasing. And so as fathers, as dads, and indeed for all followers of Jesus Christ, whether men or women, boys or girls, 
why would we go into a single day in this battleground unarmed? Why would we go into a single fight without our primary weapon? You see, we simply must arm ourselves daily with the word of God and further learn how to use all the weapons that God has made available to us by learning to live in obedience to his word by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5, we read this. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient unto Christ. Now, I want you to take notice here that, of course, our our weapons are spiritual in nature, not physical. And they come right down to the battleground within our very thoughts. You see, it's really easy to, to view the battleground against the enemy as only being external and out there in the world. But if we're being honest, the battleground most often rages right in here and in here, doesn't it? This is where the real victories are either won or lost in our very minds. And so, what do we do when a rogue thought comes our way? Well, we're told here, we take captive every thought to make it obedient unto Christ. So that means when that rogue thought comes our way, one that we're not sure about, a temptation, or something that just seems off, what do we do with it? We take it captive, and we bring it before Jesus in prayer. And we ask him, Lord, what what do we make of this thought? What what does this thought mean? Does it belong? And if it doesn't, I've I've learned that the vast majority of the time when when I do this, when I take that thought captive and bring it to the Lord in prayer, it almost immediately becomes obvious whether or not that thought belongs or not. Whether that thought is from the Lord or from the enemy or just from my own flesh. It becomes immediately obvious the vast majority of the time. And so as we learn to do that, we learn to live in victory. Because thought by thought, we can bring them to the Lord, make them subject unto Christ. Jesus says whether or not that thought is from him, whether it belongs, or whether it just needs to go. Now for Solomon, though he lived long before the time of Christ, before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all believers at Pentecost, he was still, the Bible records, he was still specially anointed and guided by the Holy Spirit. And so early on in his reign as king, we see examples of King Solomon guided by the Holy Spirit, making a number of very wise decisions as he obeys God's word and follows the guidance of the Spirit. However, later on in his reign, we see Solomon gradually begin to stray from the Lord, gradually beginning to make poorer and poorer decisions to the point of allowing pagan idols to be set up within his own palace and within his own household. Now, how did it come to that? How did Solomon, who began so well, with so much wisdom, anointed by the Holy Spirit, how did it come to that? How did he give in to the devil's schemes? Well, we know that his many foreign wives were the means by which this happened. But let me humbly suggest to you that it started even sooner. That perhaps one sunny day, Solomon simply went into battle unarmed. He left his sword at home. 
And he went through the day and nothing happened. Everything was fine. Oh, what's the big deal? And so he went a second day into battle unarmed, and then a third, and then a fourth. But then the day finally came where he was ambushed. And unarmed, he was defeated. And he lost the battle. The first idol came into his household. And then another, and then another, and then another, until the point where the Bible actually tells us that Solomon joined together with his wives in worshiping at the pagan altars. Fathers, listen. Satan is a master of cunning and deception. Most often he knows that if he cannot defeat you or your family by a direct attack, he will lull you into a false sense of security and complacency in your walk with the Lord. Oh yeah, I haven't read my Bible in weeks, but you know what, nothing's gone wrong, I'm doing fine. It can happen so easily. You stop directly engaging with God's word as a daily habit. Prayer becomes an afterthought or maybe just a mechanical recital at mealtimes. Bringing your family to church starts to feel like a chore that is easily skipped over. Directly talking with your children about the Lord is seldom, if ever done for long stretches, always, always with that noble thought of, oh, I'll get to that, I'll get to that, eventually, someday. But the reality is that someday always passes by sooner than we realize. The hands on the clock never stop turning, as every preacher is well aware of. (laughs) We wish there was a pause button so we could just keep going and you guys wouldn't know that lunchtime was coming. But it's the same with our kids, isn't it? We wish that at a certain age we're just going to hit the pause button and they're going to stay at this perfect age forever. But it never stops. They never stop growing. They never stop learning. And then the day comes where the baby you held is, oh, you're nine years old. And then you double that age and suddenly you realize, oh, they're going to be out of my house. And it hits home. And for some of you who are just in that empty nest stage, you know what I'm talking about way more than I do. It never stops. Our children keep growing older. And whether we are engaging or not, they are learning either from us or someone else. And whether we are engaging or not, they are learning from our example, whether for good or for bad. And that is why we must put on the armor of God and arm ourselves for battle every single day. Now, believe me, (laughs) I know what it feels like to feel entirely unqualified for this responsibility. But I love that it is not up to me to qualify myself. That is the Lord's job. He qualifies those whom he calls. Pastor Craig Groeschel once said this. I love this quote. He said, Satan loves to make strong men weak, but God loves to make weak men strong. And this leads us into our fourth and final point. Become a man by aiming yourself and your children at the right target. Become a man by aiming yourself and your children at the right target. Now, I'll just say up front, I'm a hunter. And so I've, ever since I grew up, I've enjoyed hunting. I had my first uh, BB gun, I believe, when I was nine or ten years old, uh, a daisy, and uh, I love taking that thing out. And now my son Declan, who's nine years old, just got his first BB gun, and, and I'm enjoying this process of teaching him how to aim at the right target and then how to actually hit the target. Because at the beginning, 
much easier said than done. And so now let me ask you, did you know that there is approximately the same amount of gunpowder in a firecracker as there is in a high-powered rifle shell? There's about the same amount of gunpowder in a a firecracker as in a high-powered rifle shell. Now, what's the difference between them? They both have gunpowder. They both go bang. Well, what's the difference? Well, the biggest difference is that the firecracker's energy is unharnessed and unfocused. So when that gunpowder is ignited, it's all show with no go. It makes a lot of noise, but it accomplishes nothing. However, in stark contrast, the the rifle shell's energy is focused and harnessed that when it goes bang, it sends its projectile in a specific direction at high velocity. And so, with only the same amount of gunpowder as a firecracker, when carefully aimed, it can bring down a big game animal. It packs a punch. And so, dads, which would you rather be more like? That firecracker or a rifle shell? All show with no go, making a lot of noise, but not accomplishing much of anything? Or do you want your energy to be harnessed and focused in a specific direction, one that enables your life to make a tremendous impact for God? Well, the answer is obvious, right? We would all rather be like that rifle shell. And so we do this by aiming our lives at the right target. Philippians chapter 3 Verses 13 and 14 tells us what that right target is. It writes, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And so right there, the Apostle Paul is saying that the right target The right goal to aim our lives at is nothing less than being in heaven with the Lord Jesus. And so once our aim is on that right target, then as fathers, we are divinely positioned to aim each one of our children towards that same target. That when our lives go bang, we are hurtling the projectile of our children's lives in the right direction, towards the right target. In Psalm 127, verses 3 and 5, it says this, Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from Him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Now, I just love this picture. Children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. And dads, guess who the warrior is in this picture? That's us. We're the warrior. So if you're ever at that stage where your kids say, Dad, you're getting old and washed up and slowing down, you say, the Bible says I'm a warrior. All right? So you better listen up. Bible says I'm a warrior. What is the job of a warrior? What is the job of a warrior? What is the making of a warrior? All the things we've just talked about. Training, diligence, self-discipline, practice, practice, and more practice. You don't just hit the bullseye in the first shot. If you did, you're lucky. Repeat that ten times in a row. Easier said than done. We have to practice. We have to be diligent. And so, as fathers, as warriors who are sending our children towards the right target, we have to be diligent as we aim them towards the bullseye 
of entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ and into a life walking with the Lord. And so, returning now to David's final deathbed words to his son, in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, here we see again the old grizzled king says to the young, inexperienced king-to-be, Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. So in other words, Solomon is, David is saying to Solomon, that if he aims his life at the Lord, just as David his father had aimed his life at the Lord, and if Solomon then aimed his children at the Lord, and then if those children aimed their children at the Lord, then from generation to generation to generation, the line of David God promised would sit on the throne of Israel forever. Now, of course, we continue in the story and we know that that chain of faithful children is broken much too quickly. But even so, God still graciously kept his promise to David that in the end, the Lord Jesus, born in the line of David, would take the throne and reign as king forever. This is a tremendous example of how the power of God can work through just one father, one man who had a heart that sought after God, one man who embraced his God-given responsibility of leadership. One man who walked in obedience to God's word. And one man who aimed himself and his children at the right target. Now, I'm not saying that any of this is easy. Far from it. But how many of the most important things in life are ever easy? How many of them come easy? I would suggest none of them. All of the most important things in life require diligence, self-sacrifice, and some blood, sweat, and tears. But in the end, it's worth it, my friends. It is worth it. Former United States President Teddy Roosevelt once famously said, It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcomings, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. My fellow brothers in the Lord, by the mighty grace and power of God, in the same way may we strive to show ourselves a man, not by the world's standards, but by God's standards. So may we not be caught up as spectators in the stands of our families' lives, in the raising of our children. May we instead get down in that arena where the real life happens, 
where, yes, mistakes are made, but the grace of God flows. May we get down in that arena, fully armed and filled with the Spirit, carrying the sword of the Spirit in our hands and in our mouths, to have the strength of the Lord to face the foe in the battle. And in so doing, may we receive God's blessing, not only for ourselves, but for our wives, for our children, and yes, for generations yet to come, according to God's design. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this charge. As fathers, we receive it as from you. It is a sacred call. It is a divine appointment. But Lord, through the words of your servant David all those years ago, as you spoke those words through him to Solomon, you today speak them to each one of us. And so, Lord, we receive it in humility, knowing that apart from your strength, we are unequal to the task. We fail and we fall short. But we thank you, Lord, that it is when we engage, when we get in the arena, that your grace flows and your spirit is at work within us, refining us, strengthening us day by day. And so, Lord, I pray that today we as fathers will do all that your word has commanded, not legalistically, but walking in the spirit, filled with your grace, knowing that when we fall short, you will pick us back up so long as we keep our face towards you, just as David did. And so, Lord, we pray for our children and generations yet to come that as we take careful aim to send their lives towards the right target, we pray, Lord, that they will hit the mark and that as they hit the mark, that they will turn around and do the same and that generations yet to come will hear of you and enter into a relationship with you because of our faithfulness today, just as you did that through David all those generations ago. And so, Lord, continue to work in and through each one of the men in our church family. As, Lord, you build up each individual family, you will build up this whole family as a church. And the word will spread, the gospel will flourish. And so we pray this, Lord, your Holy Spirit would fill these these efforts, for it is your design. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.